Bible has been around for thousands of years. So why do we still struggle to understand what kind of book it is? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by my colleague, Paul Caminiti. We're also glad to be joined all the way from Melbourne, Australia, by Dr. Michael Bird. Dr. Bird is the academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, and he's written and edited over 30 books on all sorts of things, ranging from the Septuagint to the historical Jesus, the Gospels, St. Paul, biblical theology, and systematic theology. He's also an Anglican priest, so he proudly balances with, uh, with one foot in the academy and one foot in the church. Today, we're excited to talk with him about his newest book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex, and uh, great to be with you as well as Paul and with all your listeners. Yes, thank you, Dr. Bird. Can we, can we call you Mike or Michael? Uh, call me Mike, Michael, anything but Mick. <laughs> <laughs> but Mick. Okay. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk to Michael. And uh Michael, you need to know that you're our first ever guest from Australia. And um, you know, it's it's a win-win situation. Even if you say things that offend us or our listeners, people will be charmed by that accent and you'll just, you know, skate, skate through. So uh we, we do thank you. But let's be clear, um, even though you hail from Australia, you are well-traveled. You have taught in theology in Europe, and you've taught theology in North America, and, and now you're, you're there, um, probably um, sequestered from COVID uh, there, there in Australia. But we, we're, we really are uh, delighted to have you, and I think we're, we're probably kindred spirits. Um, we enjoyed the book. and. Um, in the preface, you said, by the end of reading this book, I hope to change the way you think about the Bible, transform the way you handle the Bible, and inspire you to enjoy, enjoy the, Bible, the Bible like never before. So that's good. Our, that, that, uh, that syncs up nicely with our mission statement, which is changing the way the world reads the Bible. So uh, good, good symbiosis here. Hey, before we jump into the, the different topics of the book, uh, we always like to ask a preliminary question about how people got hooked on the Bible. And you self-identify as a professional Bible nerd, and we're curious to know how that came about. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't have a lot of Bible growing up. Uh, I grew up in a fairly sort of secular, uh, non-religious household. Uh, you know, everything I learned about Christianity growing up, I learned from Ned Flanders. Uh, pretty much of Simpsons fame. Uh, but I came to faith when I was 20 years old, serving in the military of all things, sort of, you know, um, went along to a local Baptist church, pretty much out of pure boredom, uh, to be honest. And it was nothing like I was expecting. I was expecting a bunch of moralizing geriatrics, and that's not what I got. And they were very excited about Jesus. Uh, they preached Jesus from the Bible, and I got super interested in the Bible and started getting hooked on the Bible and, you know, kept reading it and uh, memorizing parts of it, and uh, then I wanted to, you know, serve God in some ways. I thought about becoming an army chaplain, um, although it became uh, uh, clear eventually my giftings were more academic than um, than maybe on like on the, on the pastoral side of things. So I just kept going with my studies, and 
uh, I was able to get a uh, scholarship to do a doctorate at the University of Queensland, and then I got a job at the Highland Theological College in the north of Scotland. Got to publish a few things around the way, and I, I get to, I get to read the Bible and and tell people what I've read. It's, it's I think of myself a little bit a little bit like um, uh, I don't know, and does anyone here? I'll not remember the TV show Mork and Mindy. I don't know, Paul. You probably are. I don't know you, Alex. But I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. it's a show with Robin Williams, and at the end of every episode. Um, uh, Mork would repeat to his alien boss Olsen what he's kind of learned on planet Earth that week, and I feel I feel a little bit like um, Mork that I kind of I spend all this time in, in the Bible, then I go back and tell Olsen or the people in my congregation or you know all my students what I've learned from you know spending time in the Bible. You know this is this is what I learned this week. You know yeah. Um, yeah. you know don't worship false idols. Uh, kind of, you know, the love of God is paramount. Um, so that's that's, I guess, guess that's where where it begins from. And um, I love my job. I get to teach Bible and, and help help Christians uh, read the Bible, get the most out of it, and with a view to with a view to having a faith that is meaningful and they can live out in today's world. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And uh, over in my office back here, I've got the book that you worked on with, with N.T. Wright, the New Testament in its, in its world. And if, if I have a day where I can't get to the gym, I'll do some bicep curls or, you know, some squats with it. It's yeah. what, like 900 pages or something. That thing's it's got, hefty. got it's some hefty. real heft to it. Um, your newest book is what, maybe 10% the size of, oh, uh, of, of not that even. one. Not um, even. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a small thing, but you know, going through it, it, it packs some, packs some punch. There's some, there's some good stuff in it. And I think we're, Paul and I are both curious, kind of what was your motivation for writing it? What was your impetus for Well, there, for there was it? two things. Yeah, there were two motivations. One is you get a lot of um, common queries or misconceptions about the Bible where people think, well, obviously, you know, you, you have to take the Bible literally. That's the conservative, faithful way of reading it. I'm like, well, not necessarily. Um, yeah. You know, it's a little bit more complex than that. Uh, and then you get the other side when people said, yeah, I was talking to one of my friends in the lunchroom and I reckon the Bible was invented by Constantine in the fourth century. Mm. What's, what's, what's up with that? So you've got these sort of, these sort of traditional pieties we have, or maybe not even pieties, just certain assumptions about the, what the Bible is, how it should work and how to read it, which I think are, are not always right or not always quite helpful or Sometimes they're a half truth, and then you've got some just weird, wacky things that people allege about the Bible. And I was wanting to do with that. Okay, if, if, let me pick seven things that if you knew about, uh, you're not going to get stumped by someone asking a crazy question in your lunchroom at Walmart or at the office. And here's some here's some basic tips for how to th- not not just how to use the Bible, but how to think about the Bible, what where the Bible came from, what it is and what role it's meant to have in your life. Yeah, and, and there's a lot at stake here. Um, and you, you kind of latch on to a phrase from my generation. Again, Alex, you'll have to tune out here. But it was kind of the Bible, bump, Bible bumper sticker of our era, which is um, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And you, uh, you take umbrage with that. In fact, you state, uh, in your book, in kind of a provocative way, I might add, Mike, you say the Bible says it, I believe it, um, that settles it, is somewhere uh, between grossly naive, utterly impractical, and positively horrible 
um, to imagine. And so uh, with that set up, um, talk to us a, a little bit of, we want to talk a little bit about why it's important that we, you know, disabuse um, people's minds of this simplistic ap- approach to things. Trust and obey doesn't always get us, you know, where where we want to go. So let's let's start with a couple of key themes that you talk about. First of all, you introduce actually how the Bible came into existence, and I think more often we get questions where people are curious about how certain books were selected to be included in the canon. But you go back to how the Bible was actually put together. And I think, again, people assume it's kind of straightforward. You know, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, pretty much whoever's name is on the title, sat down and wrote the book. But um, you challenge some of those assumptions as being simplistic. You say that the process is more complex. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, well, in, in terms of the, the formation of the Bible, uh, let's take something like the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, now, you could say that a, a very traditional view says that they're all literally penned by Moses. Okay. Now, Moses is recognized as the kind of uh, original author or the progenitor or the source of the tradition. So it, it kind of goes back to Moses. So we do have what I would call a, a mosaic tradition which I, I don't see any particular reason to dispute. But in, in, the, in, the, in those five books, let's call them the Pentateuch, you do see perspectives that indicate it was written, parts of it were written long after Moses. For example, when it says, I think it says something like Abraham and his relatives went as far as Dan. Well, the tribe of Dan did not exist in the days of Abraham or let alone the days of Moses. So that's kind of a smoking gun that shows you that there is a, a, a post-settlement perspective that is being given uh, in it. Uh, and also, like, I don't think Moses wrote about his own death you right. know, and what happened thereafter. That's, you know, you've got to assume that that, you know, that 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 was not written by Moses. So you've got kind of Moses as the sort of, you know, the the source, the the uh, the authorizer or the, uh, the, the you know, granddaddy of this tradition, which is then passed down orally, you know, takes on, you know, different forms, then gets written down. And most scholars would say it's probably kind of given a final edition, neatened up and what we would call redacted or, you know, edited by a priestly circle, probably just after the exile. Okay. The exile into Babylon. So that, that's pretty much the story of uh, the, the Pentateuch. Now, scholars will dispute that. There's, you know, some people a long time ago had a thing called JEPD theory, which is not a legal, a legal firm. Um, it's actually a, some idea, but it, but a lot of it, you know, we don't know. We we know you've got this body of mosaic traditions that probably gets edited by a priestly circle. After that, no one really knows for certain. But that's that's the form of the text that's been received by Jews and by Christians, and we recognize that it's from God and it's 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 God's words. It was God's word to the Jews. It was also God's word for Jesus, and it's God's word for the church. So that, I mean, that, that's one example. That's you know, a little bit more complicated than sort of you know Moses sitting down with a with um you know parchment and quill on the on the on the steps of Mount Sinai and kind of writing you know in the beginning you know the Lord made the heavens and the earth it's a little bit more complex than that uh, in the case of say the New Testament and I mean this is a question I ask you as I say how do you know which books should be in the New Testament because God did not reveal first the table of contents. You know, to tell you, 
And also when the, you know, in the early church, they didn't go around with like an inspiration. I mean, like an app on their phone that kind of goes green when you've got an inspired text. So, you know, you come up to Paul's letter to the Romans, you know, you get a strong green, like, you know, <laughs> and, uh, or whether, you know, you put, you put it against something else like, you know, the gospel of Thomas, you know, one of those, you know, so-called Gnostic. And uh, if, if you put your phone on that, it doesn't go do-do-do-do-do-do telling you to stay away from it. So, I mean, ha- how did the church figure out which book should be part of their sacred list? And it, it, was, it was a matter of consensus. And very quickly, they were very, uh, it was very, very clear that people were recognizing that the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the letters of Paul plus Hebrews, one John and one Peter. Certainly, by the end of the second century, there seems to be a very strong consensus about those books. Uh, and then there's a few others that people are wondering about. They're wondering about, oh, I don't know, Second Peter. I mean, pretty good Greek for a fisherman. Uh, Revelation. That's got some strange stuff too. And then there were some other books that people really liked, and they thought maybe that should be part of it, like the, a book called The Shepherd of Hamas, which is kind of a, a Sort of a, an, an apocalyptic track about an angel who um, um, helps helps the guy out and gives him some visions and some parables and some ethical instructions. People really like the Shepherd of Hamas, and then there was the Apocalypse of Peter and the and the Didache. Okay, some of these writings were very popular in Christian circles, and people wanted maybe they should be included. But the consensus that we have um, is largely the sixty six books that make up our Old and New Testament. Um, there's also a thing called the Apocrypha, but that's a, that's a separate story, uh, if you like. And so yeah, for, the, for the New Testament, it was really about the consensus of which are the books. And this is what I would call God's sanctification of creaturely processes to take the written word of God and to put it into its canonical location. So God, through the Spirit, uses the church not just to inspire authors to write, but to inspire the church to come up with the biblical canon. So I'm thinking at this point, some of our lister, listeners are already uncomfortable. So let's let's dive in and get them a little bit more uncomfortable and talk about inspiration. So scripture uses uh, phrases like, you know, the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit or the well-known um, all scripture is God breathed, those sorts of things. What exactly would you say those sorts of phrases mean as far as how authors were inspired by God to write scripture? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big debate about that. You know, what does God inspire? Now, you can have um, you can have people who take the word inspiration very literally, kind of like you know Matthew was you know sitting on a um, park bench opposite the Sea of Galilee, and he was thinking, oh, feels so it feels so lovely and peaceful here. I feel the I feel the serenity here. You know, I think. I think Jesus would want to bless the peacemakers. So I'm going to write down, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, you know, kind of, you know, people think of inspiration kind of like that as if Jesus is just the muse or or something was inspiring people to write the way a a rose may inspire a poet to write a poem. That's not what inspiration is. Uh, For some people, inspiration can almost be something like a dictation. And, you know, to to give another example of that, the, the opposite extreme you know, imagine Matthew goes into his study, he kind of sits down and gets out his ink and his little quill and 
and parchment and then all of a sudden his eyes kind of roll back in his head and he goes into some ecstatic trance and he starts unconsciously writing and then he comes out of his trance and then he looks down oh wow i've i've written the gospel according to matthew you know how about that so that's what i would call the two extremes as to what people think inspiration uh is and uh as far as i can tell it's none of those uh, now, sometimes God can dictate words like, uh, you know, you get that a bit in, you know, uh, the Ten Commandments given to Moses. You can also get things like what happens to John of Patmos, you know, where he's told, take and write the things that you see and always given specific words. So you can get a bit of that. But generally, what I think happens in inspiration is the spirit of God moves in the mind of an author to guide their mind towards the ideas, the concepts and the things that God wants to say. Uh, now, it, 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 I'm a little bit hesitant to say it goes down to the level of just words because that would become simply um, a slightly more passive version of dictation theory. And uh, the other thing is, you know, you've got to remember that God uses the personality, the memory, and even the foibles of the individual authors. I mean, let me give you two examples of that. You know, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. And they're having a big argument. It's like, hey, I was baptized by Paul. You, you got baptized by Peter. I mean, your baptism is like nothing. Like my baptism is better than your baptism. And Paul gets into this. He says, look, you know, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel. And he goes, look, you know, I, I look, I, I, I didn't preach. I didn't remember baptizing anyone. And he says, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. I, I baptized the house of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't remember baptizing anyone. And so I, I, did, did God inspire Paul to forget who he baptized? Right. You know, I mean, you, you, you get something kind of like that. Or when Luke begins his gospel saying, you know, many have undertaken to write a, uh, an account of the life of Jesus. Uh, but since I have, you know, carefully studied things from the, from the beginning and investigated all the sources and the eyewitnesses, um, did Luke actually do all that stuff? Uh, or does he just say it? Uh, now, I, now I, I think he actually did the study. He, he spoke to eyewitnesses. He interviewed um, people. He, he learned from Paul and, and some of the other sort of apostles. And the, uh, he, he learned about the story of Jesus and the story of the church. So God used his experience, his research, his memory, um, his you know, writing ability to write the gospel of Luke and, and the acts of the apostles. So God uses the resources, the personality, the memory of it. So I, I tend to think inspiration happens largely at the level of concept, um, general idea, and which is not to say that God says something like, you know, hey David, how about something, how about something nice about a shepherd, man? What do you got? What do you got on a shepherd for us? You got some <laughs> nice shepherd imagery, and David thinks, hey, why not? And he says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. I don't think it's just kind of like you know, your boss gives you a vague idea, right. you know, how about something about shepherds? I think it might be a little bit more than that, but. Uh, I think it's um, not as far as dictation theory, if, if you can get what I mean. So somewhere between somewhere between the gist and the words, um, I think is where is the level of influence the Holy Spirit has upon human minds when inspiration occurs. There's a um, a video series that's making the rounds here in North America about Jesus that's quite popular called The Chosen. Has that uh, found its way to? To Australia as well. well it's, it certainly has. It certainly has. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I haven't seen any of the episodes yeah. myself. I've got some some friends who have seen it, some of my students, and 
Uh, from what I've heard, they they quite like it. It's um it's relatively popular. I probably need to um crack on and watch it one day. But oh. yeah, it's, well, there's there's uh, there's, there's I heard, a I heard it's good. Yeah, there, there's this isn't a full throated endorsement from the Institute for Bible Reading, but uh, I've I've found it to be quite engaging and imaginative. And so, anyhow, in one of the opening episodes, you have the Apostle John, and he's interviewing the different disciples. So they kind of come in one by one, and I think Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, mother comes in, and you're, you know we're not told what's happening, but if you you know pretty soon you get the idea. Okay, he's interviewing in preparation for writing, writing his gospel. And there's kind of a, you know, kind of a, a clever, uh, you know, funny in there where someone says, maybe you should throw a genealogy in there. And he says, not, you know, Matthew, you know, Matthew will cover that. Matthew's kind of pictured as being a bit anal retentive and, you know, the tax collector, et cetera. So there's a lot of imagination, but, but does that, you know, is that kind of the investigative journalist, uh, you know, yeah, uh, I, I don't. I don't know whether I don't know whether it would have been that quite that formal. Um, um, you know, as if you know, uh, Luke was cruising around Jerusalem wearing a fedora and, and carrying a <laughs> notebook with him, um, and kind of you know sitting in dingy bars with kind of some guy saying, "I was there, man. Yeah, I was there." <laughs> no, uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it was quite like that. Um, I think it's more like you know, you know, they they. You know, while they're sitting, well, they're they're on a they're on a voyage somewhere from you know um from um Ephesus, you know, heading south or something, and he's he's talking to someone who was in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, or or someone who was at um uh, in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, or or who remembers when Paul first, or or talking to Paul, what happened when him and Barnabas came to Crete, you know, stuff stuff like that. Um, I, th- I think it was probably a little bit more informal rather than a um. You know, people being interviewed by investigative journalists, but you know, who, who knows? I mean, Luke Luke says he's got a genuine interest in, in talking to people and writing, and, and that's also the kind of what you would call the Greek historical tradition, going back to going back to uh, Thucydides. You know, the idea you've you've got to get a good grip of the eyewitnesses and the sources. Uh, you, you go back to them, and then that's how you you, you write up your account. You, you you've got to rely on the the witnesses or the people who were there, rather than just purely secondhand accounts. Yeah. So in light of this idea of conceptual guidance, what's your take on red letter editions of, of the Bible where all of Jesus's words are kind of set apart in this red letter font? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bit, bit of a mixed thing. Now, one thing you will say for the early church, they definitely were red letter uh, Christians. So they love quoting the words of Jesus. So if you read uh, a body of writings called the Apostolic Fathers, which is kind of like the generation after the apostles. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very important generation. You know, I, I tell people stop reading the left behind novels and prairie <laughs> romance novels. Go read some apostolic fathers. It's it's really good stuff. And yeah, that they quote the words of Jesus all the time. You know, that's very important. And this is why the Gospel of Matthew was the number one favorite book of Christians um, in the early church. Nothing is more quoted, cited, or referred to than the Gospel of Matthew by Christians in subsequent centuries of their own literature. Um, what you have to remember, though, with the words of Jesus, well, I mean, what, what the Gospels give us uh, is is not kind of like a transcript of everything Jesus said. It's not even it's it's not like you know if you are following Jesus around, you know, and, and filming him with your iPhone, th- this is how exactly how it was. It's more of a digest or a summary type of a thing, you know. Yeah. Like I mean, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, 
you know, um, it, it, it probably goes for what, what, 15 minutes if you read it. Now, I guarantee you, Jesus being, you know, remember he was baptized as an adult, so he was obviously a Baptist. No self-respecting <laughs> Baptist preacher preaches for less than 40 minutes. So, yeah, that's you know, I, I, I can tell you now that the Sermon on the Mount is more like the, um, the show notes, um, you know, of, of the gist of what he said, um, you know. He, he he probably you know preached probably you know, could have been for, for hours you know yeah. two or three hours or something he most likely spoke to a crowd from and what you have is kind of a, a summary and you could say that with all the major discourses and elements and so so you you've kind of got like summaries of Jesus and and memories of things he said and the impressions he made upon his followers so as long as long as you know that this may not be the exact verbatim, I mean, I think some things are because Jesus was very good at sort of very witty, short, provocative one-liners. Um, but yeah, as long as you know that this is this is not just a verbatim transcript, but this is also a summary and something of a an interpretation of what Jesus was remembered to be saying. So as long as you got a few caveats, um, that's okay. But yeah, like I said in the early church, they were very excited and very keen on the precise words of Jesus. And it's quotes of Jesus that you find all through Christian literature of the second, third, and, and following centuries. Very interesting. And you know, I, I wonder if some of the same happened you know, with the prophets. Uh, it's hard to imagine a prophet upon their soapbox waxing eloquently in poetic form. Somebody else took that and, and put it into a, to a more poetic form. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. Um, certainly, I think for someone like Isaiah and Jeremiah, I think that's that's definitely the case. In fact, you know, Jeremiah says he had his own little personal scribe, um, you know, um, you know, Baruch, who was you know writing these things down for him. So yeah, that that that, that thing definitely happened. Hmm. That's it. Let's move to the second I. You've talked about inspiration, and then you get into inerrancy and address the question about whether or not the Bible is, is without error. And uh, as in the case of inerrancy, you basically state that it isn't really cut and dried, and anybody who thinks that probably hasn't really read the Bible in its entirety. So is the Bible, uh, Mike, is it without error? And kind of the follow-up question to that is, you know, here in North America, we bat around the term verbal plenary inspiration. What do you think of that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Two questions there, Paul. Uh, the inerrancy question is, you know, there's a few things I need to say. First of all, Christians historically and around the world have always affirmed the truthfulness of Scripture. That is to say, when God brings us his word, he speaks to us the truth. But he also speaks to us in languages, in imagery, in idioms, in genres that we can understand, okay? And, you know, he, he God, God, if you like, condescends or accommodates to the worldview and the expectations. So I would say the Gospel of Luke, to give our example, is a reliable history of Jesus and the early church, but also using the historical conventions of people in the Greco-Roman world at the time. And this is a world without quotation marks. This is a world without footnotes. This is a world where, um, you know, you could have a little bit of artistic license the way that you did the way that you do things, okay, or the way you record speeches and and that type of thing. So it's historical according to ancient conventions of what is it? It, it it's it's not the same as what we might do today. Is if you're doing a 
documentary um, with NPR or or something something like that. Uh, and again, you can get some things that may make people a little bit uncomfortable, but that they do have they do have an element of artistic license. Let me give you uh, in in the Gospels a good example. You know, um, you know, Jesus comes into Jericho, and uh, Mark says he heals a blind man. Uh, I think uh, Luke says he heals a blind man on the way out of town, and Matthew says he heals two blind men. Um, now, you, if you like, you can try and harmonize this and says, okay, he healed one one guy on the way, one out on the way in. He healed one on the way out and two while he was there. So it was four all up, <laughs> which is a little bit awkward. Um, I mean, the, the, the gist is, look, he, he, he healed a blind man on, when he was in Jericho. On the way in, way out, doesn't matter. He healed a blind man on the way to Jericho. Matthew, don't know why, but Matthew likes doublets. There's always two. There's hmm. always two demoniacs, two blind guys, two left. Matthew, I, I, I think Matthew's read Mark and says, okay, Mark's got one. I'm, I'm gonna, well, I, I want to sell more copies than Mark, so I'm going to have two because my Jesus has got twice the healing power. I don't know why, but Matthew just likes doublets. He just just likes the double stuff. Uh, now, again, in the way literature is written in the ancient world, that's considered okay. You know, that, that's all right. Um, you know, you're allowed a little bit of artistic license to do that. Um, some people, that kind of weirds them out. Um, now, I mean, do, do you call that an error or do you call that just, you know, the way they wrote stuff back then? Uh, right. I, I say it, it's just the way they wrote stuff back then. It, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, Jesus healed a blind guy in the vicinity of Jericho. That's pretty amazing, if you ask me. Uh, whether he did it on the way into town or the way out of town, I don't think the blind guy would really care who told the story that way. Uh, he was blind and now he sees. You know, you know, kind of, you know, um, you know, st- stuff like that. Stuff like that. I think uh, is Im- important. And that goes to show that the, you can't have a definition of inerrancy or biblical veracity or truthfulness that is so wooden and narrow that you cannot deal with stories like that. You know, if your definition of, let's call it inerrancy, uh, means you kind of have a cosmic, you know, or a kind of intellectual meltdown when you deal with basic stories in the Gospels, then it goes to show your account of inerrancy is too wooden and narrow. Okay. Uh, the other thing I would point out is, in, and I have to say, some this is someone who lives not in North America, that the uh, inerrancy has a status and significance in American churches that it has nowhere around the world. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so I mean, so I mean, like I said, Christians historically and around the world say we believe the Bible is true, but this idea that inerrancy is the one ring to rule them all kind of baffles us a little bit. I mean, let me give you an example. The Evangelical Theological Society, which is like some of the you know, best, brightest theologians uh, in North America, they have a doctrinal statement that says two things. You have to believe in the Trinity and you have to believe in inerrancy. Hmm. You don't even have to believe the gospel, the, the evangelical theology. You don't even have to believe the evangel. It's kind of like just Trinity and inerrancy. And by the way, adding the Trinity was a later add-on. Initially, you did not have to believe even in that, so that it becomes the one defining mark. And sadly, I have to say, you get the social function of inerrancy, uh, and I think it's because people want to use inerrancy in a particular way. And I have to say, sadly, there are some people when they when they maintain the inerrancy of the text, what they really mean, I suspect, is the inerrancy of their interpretation 
or they mean the inerrancy of the type of culture that they represent in the churches. So in other words, inerrancy can be a way of buttressing the hegemony of a certain type of religious culture in some denominations. So, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to cast aspersions on the doctrine of, you know, biblical truthfulness, but you've got to make sure that you've got a, a definition or understanding that is robust enough to deal with what I would call the phenomenon of scripture and also make sure that people are not hijacking inerrancy for their own particular ends, uh, which is to keep them in the driver's seat of a particular organization, denomination, ministry, or culture. Hey, everyone. Hope you're enjoying our conversation with Michael Bird about his new book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. We ended up having so much to talk about that it wasn't possible to fit it all into one episode, so we're going to have to pause the conversation here. Tune in next time to hear the second half where we dive into topics like the Bible's authority, understanding ancient historical context, and reading with Jesus at the center of the Bible. As always, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.